This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Nora the polar bear has lived a tough life, and the fact that she's alive and back in Portland at the Oregon Zoo is a miracle of sorts. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Nora's story represents so much more than the life and struggles of one bear. It's about climate change, the effect it's had on indigenous people and their livelihoods, and how we, humans, should, must, can respond to it. It also shows how zoos have evolved over the last century or more, from the 1890s to today. Up next, we'll hear from my colleague, Cale Williams, a staff writer at The Oregonian and Oregon Live, who has been reporting and writing about Nora since 2016. His new book, The Loneliest Polar Bear, expands on his award-winning 2017 series in The Oregonian. Here's our conversation. Gail Williams, congratulations on the book, and thanks for taking time to talk today. Happy to be here. So to start, I think it would be great to hear uh, just a short passage from your book, The Loneliest Polar Bear, uh, and uh, can you take it from there? Sure. Polar bears are charismatic, containing a number of seemingly contradictory qualities. They are endearing and ferocious, strong as individuals, but fragile as a species, They are to be feared, but also feared for. They come from a part of the world that few will ever see with their own eyes. It's no surprise they were anointed the face of climate change. It's been five years since you first started writing or reporting on Nora, this single remarkable polar bear. When did you realize that this was more than just a small story of a bear moving from one zoo to another? And it was, you know, broader of that passage you just uh, read from. Uh, It it happened pretty soon after uh, I first met Nora, which, as you said, was in 2016. Um, I'd gone up to the zoo. We knew that she had faced some adversity as a cub. Um, She was born uh, in November of 2015 at the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium in Ohio. Uh, And about six days after her birth, she was abandoned by her mother and raised by a team of zookeepers and veterinarians out there in Ohio. Mm -hmm. About the age of 10 months, uh, they realized that she would have to move because they were running out of space and you can't have a small bear like that in with larger bears because it could be dangerous. Um, and so she came here to Oregon um, and our editor at the time, Mark Catches, said, you know, you don't hear about this too often, figure out how rare this is. Uh, and it soon became evident to us that this was exceedingly rare. There's only a handful of bears that have been raised from such a young age by zookeepers Several have died while they were being hand-raised like that, and 
So Mark said, look into this a little more. Find out where Nora came from, not just Ohio, but further back in her lineage. So I started looking into to Nora's mom, a bear named Aurora. And Aurora had been born in a zoo, and both of Aurora's parents had both been born in zoos. But her father, a bear named Nanook, had actually been orphaned in Alaska in 1988. And it took me, you know, going through all the zoos that that where Nanook had lived over his almost 30-year lifespan at that point. Um, and I finally got to one zoo, which I believe was in Wisconsin, where they said, yeah, Nanook was actually orphaned by a hunter in Alaska after the hunter had fallen into a polar bear den. And so <laughs> so right there, I mean, you've got the hook of what sounds like an intriguing story. Um, I ended up tracking down the press release from 1988 from the, the Fish and Wildlife Service up in Alaska, which had the name of this hunter. Uh, a guy named Gene Agnabugak, who lives in a tiny village called Wales that's on the, the very western tip of the Alaskan Peninsula, about as close to Siberia as you can get without leaving the North American continent. Um, and once I talked to him and about how hunting has changed over mm -hmm. the last 30 years or so um, and about the effects of climate change and what it's having on the folks who live in places like Wales, that's when the, the broader scope of the story really started to come into focus. Now, people who are familiar with Nora's story and your fantastic series from 2017 will remember Gene. He's a very memorable character, both from from the story itself, from the uh, art, uh, from our talented colleague Dave Killen, and from the documentary. But I just want to go back a moment. I mean, we all have these these moments in reporting, Kale, where we think something's interesting or more interesting than it might seem, but then. You know, when you when you find that press release and you realize that this story is legit, I mean, that's a light bulb moment. Absolutely. And, it, it, you know, it was it was maybe half the light bulb went on at that moment and the other half went on when I actually talked to Gene. I mean, as reporters, we're trained to be skeptical. And so especially of things like press releases. And so I thought, you know, perhaps whoever wrote up that, you know, four paragraph release in 1988 was overselling things. Mm -hmm. um, and it took me actually several weeks after we got that press release to actually get in contact with Gene. This village, Wales, uh, is home to about 150 people. Uh, it is not on the road system. So the only way to get there is either by boat, which is very rare, or by snowmobile, or by plane, which is the, the most popular way to get there. And so, you know, his number wasn't listed anywhere. Uh, I ended up just calling kind of the main village office, um, where, you know, most of the official business is conducted and saying, hey, does a guy named Gene still live there? And they said, yep. And they gave me his number, and I rang him up, and he picked up on the second ring. And, you know, there was that sort of weird, awkward introductory phase where I'm like, hey, I'm a reporter. Are you the guy who fell in a polar bear den 30 years ago? And he was like, oh yeah, that's me. <laughs> and we kind of just took it from there. Um, and so the, the second half of the light bulb really came on during that first conversation. So how how is climate change, um, and you get into this in the, into the book, obviously in great detail, but how is that, how is it affecting indigenous Alaskans, um, people like Gene? So... Wales is 
or has been historically a, a, a village where the people there have survived from subsistence hunting. You know, in the spring and the summer, they, they hunt and fish on land. They hunt for moose and caribou uh, and, and uh, eider ducks and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the winter, they hunt on the sea ice. They hunt walrus. Um, historically, they've hunted bowhead whales, though the, the population of that species has dwindled pretty dramatically, and so they don't do much whaling anymore. Uh, on rare occasions, they hunt polar bears, but that's, they're usually, you know, kind of a prey of opportunity uh, rather than something they go out looking for. But they use the ice just like polar bears do uh, to stalk seals, um, and, and that's how they've made their living. So as sea ice has decreased, they no longer have that platform on which to hunt. And, and sea ice also provides protection for the coasts from things like erosion and powerful storms. So they've certainly seen the ice diminish up there. But what they've also said is that the the weather has become incredibly unpredictable where, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, uh, the elders up there tell me that you might see, you know, two or three weeks of good weather at a time. And it was something that you could count on. Uh, Whereas now you'll have good weather and within hours it can change, Uh, you know, and these are people that have lived up there for time immemorial. And so they have these stories that have been passed down and this, this traditional knowledge that they've built up over generations that's based on, you know, predictability. And without that predictability, it becomes much more dangerous to be out on, you know, the Bering Sea in the winter in a small boat, you know, with five or six other guys hunting um, when, you know, a storm could come out of nowhere uh, and change things within a matter of hours. Let's pivot back to, to Nora. Um, I never had a chance to see Nora. I had a, you know, infant at the time she was here. Um, describe describe Nora. I mean, what, what was it like to visit her? Um, you saw her on a few different occasions. So, and can you describe, you know, the bear's personality? Yeah. Uh, so the first time I met her was, it was pretty soon after she arrived. She had not gone on public display yet. Uh, they go through about a 30 day quarantine to make sure they're not bringing any illnesses or parasites from one zoo to the other. Um, and honestly, I, I had probably seen another bear, in a zoo at some point, another polar bear. Uh, but this was the first time that I had gotten really up close to one. I mean, she was not a big bear at that point as bear standards go. I think she was somewhere around 250 or 300 pounds, Mm -hmm. but you know, she seemed content ish, you know, she was behind the scenes. And so she was still kind of wandering between the dens uh, back out of public view. And she was most comfortable in the crate that she had traveled from Columbus to Oregon in. And so she kind of looked up at me and she was sort of suckling on the, on the bars of the crate, which is something that the zookeepers told me that, you know, she had a, a habit of doing. But, you know, as far as I could tell, being a non-polar bear expert at the time, she yeah. seemed content and she was extremely cute. I mean, she was a 10-month-old polar bear. She still had a lot of the features that that baby animals do, the big eyes, the kind of clumsy gait, uh, that type of thing. And so, you know, it, it's hard not to be enamored with an animal like that. As she she stayed at the zoo, she you know, kind of came out of her shell a little more. Um, she was very interested in people. Um, and that was a habit that she had developed in Columbus, having been raised by zookeepers. And so, mm-hmm. you know, after she went on public display, she spent a lot of time up by the glass. She really seemed to interact with the with zoo goers, um, which was, I think, beneficial both for her and for the people who came to see her. Uh, she was very playful, kind of gregarious in nature. 
I learned a lot about the Oregon Zoo in your book. People who've lived here in Oregon or in the Portland area for a while might think of, you know, Packy, uh, the famous elephant who lived at the zoo for decades and decades. But we have a long history with polar bears as well, right? We do. Um, polar bears were among, well, not among the first species at the zoo, because the history of the zoo goes back to, you know, more than 100 years. It's supposed to be the oldest zoo uh, west of the Mississippi, is, if I'm remembering that correctly. Yep. Uh, and there there were several bears that, that came before Nora. There were a couple grizzlies uh, that were donated by a, a pharmacist who collected wild animals. Um, but yeah, the first polar bear uh, was in a very small and pretty cruel by today's standards enclosure up in Washington Park near where the Rose Garden is now. And then there was a succession of bears after that. And it, I mean, that was part of why that history of zoos was was interesting to me was that you could sort of see the progression of how we thought of zoo animals as you know went in parallel with how the bears were treated at the zoo many of them met untimely ends one of them was shot after a keeper fell in to one of the enclosures a couple of them died after ingesting uh one of them ingested a rubber ball that was thrown into their enclosure. Another one died of an illness they contracted from food. And around the 80s was when people really started to take the welfare of the animals themselves into account. And that's when uh, Tossel and Conrad came to the zoo, the, the brother and sister pair that preceded Nora. And, you know, that ties in nicely with the fact that the zoo just completed uh, a brand new polar bear exhibit, which is far and above one of the nicest that I've seen, having seen probably half a dozen now in the reporting of this, the series in the book. Yeah. And uh, I think we'll we'll talk a little bit more about Nora's return, quote unquote, home here to, to Portland and sure. to the Oregon Zoo after a break. But one thing that really stood out from your book is how much, Kale, we still don't know about polar bears and how many there are in the wild, right? I mean, it's still kind of a mystery uh, or, you know, not a mystery, but uh, it's, it's, it's not a sure thing. <laughs> it's kind of an estimate. Yeah, no, it is very much an F estimate and in some cases a very rough estimate. Uh, so polar bears live in 19 distinct subpopulations uh, around the Arctic, and some of them are very well studied. The ones on the Hudson Bay in northern Canada are probably mm -hmm. the most well studied. They're some of the, the most southerly bears, um, and so people have the most access to them. Other bears, there's very little known about them at all, especially off of Russia's northern coast because it's just so remote. I mean, you have to imagine these are white bears living in an almost all-white environment where part of the year there's very little sunlight. And so to study them or and to count them more accurately, mm -hmm. most of the time researchers go up in helicopters. They'll fly around looking for bears. When they find one, they'll shoot it with a tranquilizer dart and attach uh, a tag to its ear uh, and give it a tattoo inside of its lip to give it a, a unique identification number. And then they go out the next season and they do the same thing. And then they're able to take that ratio and figure out a rough estimate of how many bears are in that given study area. And then they use that to extrapolate how many might be in any given subpopulation. And so you have to imagine using that kind of crude counting process, it is difficult to discern how many bears might be in one area or another. Now, if you do that over enough amount of time, you can sort of establish a baseline right. and 
provide an estimate about whether you know a certain population is increasing or decreasing or remaining stable but you know as you can imagine it's a it's a tremendously difficult and time-consuming endeavor so kel you also um in addition to you know writing about breaking news write about the environment and and science um and one thing about your book that um i thought was really unique is that you kind of make all these connections through time with how long both climate change has been an issue that people are thinking about it as well as zoos um, emergence in our society. And, you know, it, it kind of blew my mind a bit that, you know, this was back in the 1890s. These are all things that were being discussed, right? Yeah. I mean, that was one part of the story that I thought was important. And I sort of did this on a number of different topics where, you know, it's easy to see where we are and maybe where we've been over the last 15 or 20 or 30 years. But I really wanted to look at where these things originated. And, you know, I went the farthest back with polar bears where I kind of talked about their evolutionary split from the grizzly bear. Mm -hmm. But with climate change, you know, it wasn't that long ago when most of humanity believed that the climate didn't change, that it, it, whatever, you know, conditions we were experiencing at the time had always been like that. And there was a, uh, I believe he was a, a farmer in Europe who saw these giant boulders at, that had come to rest at the bottom of a valley floor. And he looked up and saw where he thought they had come from and was kind of like, well, how the hell did these get here? <laughs> and, you know, he started pitching this idea to scientists and they eventually came up with the idea of the ice age that, you know, glaciers that had thought to have previously only existed much farther north had once been that far south and had carried these giant boulders down to the valley floor. And that was sort of when humanity realized that, oh, you know, the climate is not a static occurrence, that it is constantly changing and shifting. And then from there, you know, people started to to look into the effect that greenhouse gases can have on trapping heat. And then, you know, lots and lots of things happened and we find ourselves where we are today. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take a break and come back and talk more with Kale Williams about Nora and her return to Portland. Okay, Kale, um, what was your experience like with zoos before this big reporting project and the book? And I mean, has it changed how you feel about zoos? Uh, yeah, I would say that it has. I mean, I think before I had always kind of, I mean, as a child, I loved the zoo. I mean, seeing these unique animals that are usually restricted to magazines or television, um, you know, was certainly something that I was very curious about as a child. Um, as I grew up a little bit, you know, I started to think of them as more of kind of depressing places, um, you know, where these animals were kind of kept in cages and, you know, the animals couldn't possibly be happy like that. Um, you know, and that was sort of the, the idea that I, I took coming into the story. Obviously I, I was going to listen to everybody and report it out as fairly as, as I could. Um, but after spending so much time with zookeepers uh, and seeing zoo animals, um, you know, I was going to say in their natural habitat, but in their zoo habitat, uh, I think that I'm a little more conflicted now. For, strictly from an animal welfare perspective, it's hard to argue that animals like elephants and polar bears, large intelligent animals are, 
you know, quote unquote, happy in zoos, that that is the best environment for them. Um, And that manifested in Nora. She had some mental health troubles while she was here in Portland and ended up being put on antidepressants after she was was on Prozac, right? Yeah. Prozac and and some other, some other uh, prescriptions as well. Um, Probably as animals develop mental health issues, they often exhibit what's called stereotypic behavior where they'll sort of do the same motions over and over again that have no obvious uh, end goal. Um, And so it can take the form of pacing uh, or, you know, chewing on a specific spot of their body, things like that. And so strictly from that perspective, it's hard to argue that the animals are happiest there, but there are a lot of good aspects of zoos too. Um, One of the things that zoos will tell you is that, you know, they have these massive educational and awareness campaigns, Um, you know, and as I said at the beginning, when I was reading that passage, you know, it's no surprise that polar bears were anointed the face of climate change because they are so charismatic. And so it is obviously a hard thing to measure how much impact that will actually have. But when zoo goers are able to form an emotional connection with animals like Nora, Mm -hmm. The, the thought is that they will then be that much more motivated to take action on issues like climate change, you know, and beyond that, there's like, what are you going to do with an animal like Nora? Like you can't put her in the wild. Well, now she wouldn't survive very long at all. Um, and she wouldn't be alive today, right? Without the Herculean effort of all the zookeepers that um, you reported and talked to for years. Exactly. Uh, and so it's not like we could just throw open the gates, you know, put her on a train to Alaska and say happy trails. And and that's one thing that, that zoos are aware of, too. Um, I was just up at the zoo a few weeks ago, and I was talking to them about the new habitat. And I was like, so are there plans to, to you know, host breeding bears here? And uh, Amy Cutting, one of the curators up there, uh, said that Lots of zoos are actually moving away from that, um, and they're looking to take in you know animals that have been orphaned or injured in the wild that need rehabilitation or rescue, mm-hmm. but that a lot of zoos are actually moving away from breeding programs with animals like Nora. All right. Well, let's talk about that new exhibit, because um, I, I think a lot of Oregonians will recall the, the old one, um, which has been demolished and um, now replaced uh, with the new exhibit. What, what's it like? Yeah, I mean, I think that that a good way to to talk about it is to talk about how different it is from the one that was torn down. As I said before, the one where Nora originally came was built in 1986. It was considered state-of-the-art at the time. Um, But by the time I first saw it, it was pretty damn depressing. I mean, it had three yards, two of which the the public could see. They were 90% concrete on the ground. They had these big, tall rock walls um, that were imposing and gray. And then there were, you know, various windows where where zoo goers could sort of see. uh, There are a couple of them where you could see below the water so you could see her swimming, um, but most of them were above ground. There were some logs kind of scattered about that she could walk on, plenty of toys to play with. But these new exhibits are just... It's hard to describe how different they are. They're completely open, obviously not so open that Nora could get out. They have fences and things like that. Uh, But they're like where before she was surrounded on all sides by these gray walls. There's now like a hill in the middle where she can look out over, you know, half of the zoo. She can see over to the orangutans. I think Amy told me that if she's in a specific area, she might be able to see the elephants. And so there's just a lot more uh, visual stuff 
stimuli for her, uh, which is one of the things that will help, you know, with her from getting bored and developing these mental health issues. Uh, it's got two giant saltwater pools. It's all kind of grass and soft substrate. Uh, and one of the most interesting things about it, I think, is that the Oregon Zoo has sort of been on the forefront of doing research with captive polar bears uh, for almost 10 years now. They were one of the first zoos to do a uh, blood draw with a polar bear uh, without having to sedate the animal after they trained um, Tossel to sort of present her paw and tolerate them feeding her carrots while they took a blood sample. Um, and so all of that research used to happen behind the scenes, but they've set up this new exhibit so that they will be able to do that training and that type of research right out in front of everyone who comes to the zoo, which I think is really kind of demonstrates their commitment to, to conservation science. What do we know about Nora's health and personality right now? So there are actually a couple aspects of Nora's health that we haven't touched on. When she was in Utah, the zoo uh, where she went from Oregon the first time around, she developed a great relationship with another polar bear there named Hope. And so they got her off of all of her medications uh, that she was on for her mental health struggles. Mm -hmm. But then in early 2019, uh, the keepers came to the zoo one day and found her not moving. And they discovered that she had broken her humerus, one of the large weight-bearing bones in one of her front legs. Um, this is Nora, not not Hope, right? Yes, yes, this is Nora. Um, and she had to be completely immobilized. Uh, they brought in a, a special orthopedic veterinary surgeon from Texas uh, who had pioneered a couple new uh, surgical procedures. They ended up inserting a rod into the bone, and she had to be in physical therapy for eight or nine months after that before she was completely back up to speed. But she has completely healed from that. They don't believe that her bone issues had anything to do with any of her previous health issues. They don't think it's the type of thing that could be, you know, could produce recurring injuries. But, you know, she is a bear that has had to overcome a lot. Uh, broken bones, the mental health challenges, and so she will require special care, as the zoo has put it. But she seems to be doing well. Uh, she's going to be alone here for the first couple months, and the zoo has a plan to bring in another bear sometime in the fall. So I think that once she's here and settled, she'll be back with keepers that, that she has known before and that know her very well. And we'll have a companion, um, hopefully, by September or October. And do we know, you know, what's next for Nora? Is she still going to be on the circuit or is this her long-term home? You know, it's hard to say. Um, one would hope, one in my position and your position and probably the position of most Portlanders, that she will she will stay here uh, for a long time, uh, assuming that she's happy and healthy and all of those things. Uh, but the, the placement of bears is governed by the uh, Association of Zoos and Aquariums, which uh, has these, you know, kind of nested bureaucratic sounding committees and, and advisory boards that look at the best placement for bears in terms of you know, breeding and socializing. Uh, and because Nora is not necessarily a good candidate for breeding, I think that it's likely that she's going to stick around uh, for a good amount of time, but there's no way to really know. And do we know when folks in the public will be able to see her? Uh, so she came in just uh, a few days ago. I believe it was March 9th or 10th. Um, and like I said before, they go through a 30-day quarantine. Uh, so it should be early to mid-April. And 
when do you plan on on seeing her or do you plan on seeing her uh, i do i have yet to work out with the zoo whether i'll be able to to come up and uh, pay her a visit before she goes on public display. And honestly, I kind of feel like it would be, I'd kind of like to see how the public reacts on that first day when she's out. So it may, it may be a couple days before the rest of Portland gets to see her, but I'm also kind of leaning towards maybe just experiencing her return as, as a zoo goer. Well, thanks so much for the book, Kale. And uh, people should go back and read the the amazing package from 2017 and buy the book and uh, go see Nora when when it's safe to do so and when she's uh, out there in her new exhibit. Well, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared a link to Kale's series in the episode description. His book, The Loneliest Polar Bear, is out Tuesday. Kale will be appearing virtually at Powell's March 24th at 5 p.m. If you like this show, leave us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the program. And tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism is through a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.